Welcome to Two Pint PLC. My name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I have a Master's of Science Education from Iowa State University. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I have experience coaching volleyball and science Olympiad. Professional dialogue should not be restricted to the workday, so come join our personal yet professional discourse. So grab a seat, grab a glass, and join us. We will discuss that we might improve. Today we are drinking the KC Beer Company Dunkel. I'm suspicious, Ralph. I can see through this beer and that makes me uncomfortable. Uh, it's not, it's not the same as the last couple that we have drank. Uh, the head is really good. It's got a nice proportion coming out of this. I'm pretty excited for this. For this topic, we're returning to a popular pub publication. We're reading from Forbes this time, and it's a write-up of a proposal to radically change the way that grades are done right now. But before we get into what we should do, we ought to establish what's the purpose of a grade in the first place. Though there may be across the, uh, the nation and across the globe a handful of gradeless schools, for the most of us, we work in an environment where the expectations that we provide grades at some regularity is placed upon us. That is a constraint which with we must function. I believe many people would say that the purpose of grades is to provide a, uh, a benchmark regarding how students are doing with particular content. Are they developing the skills and understanding within this domain? If they are, then they would receive a higher grade, and if they are not, they would receive a lower grade. I believe that is the most popularly accepted understanding regarding the purpose of grades. Uh, I think you've got to tweak it slightly. You use the word developing in that definition. Uh, I don't think that, I think there would be a fair number of teachers uh, or administrators or community stakeholders who would take issue with the idea of developing, I think that I think the, the common ground from which we're all going to work is the answer to the question from our previous episode, what do they know? What can they do currently? How we get to answering that question is different for different teachers, whether it be uh, an emphasis on describing that developmental process, whether there's an emphasis on skills, how we got to what they can do and what they know is different between different classrooms, but what do they know, I think, is fundamental to everyone's definition of a grade. I'm having a hard time with these questions for a couple of reasons. One, I'm having a hard time with them because it seems like what I want to say is, I want, I want to, I want to flip to content delivery. I want to say grades should be a representation of what students know or what they can do because what and or what they can do uh, and anything other than that is wrong. Uh, and it, sh it should be some sort of quantification or, or description of, I think it should be a quantification, I'm prepared to debate that, uh, of the breadth and depth of their schema. So all the definitions of schema from last episode come into play. There are necessarily associated behaviors within a schema. So do the students have those behaviors? Um, and it should be as current of a representation of what they know as possible.
but I'm with you that it it should be nothing else. I don't care if they brought in a box of Kleenexes. I don't care if they didn't know it two weeks ago. If you have a more current indication that they know it now, that should be what the gradebook says. It should be moment to moment the most accurate representation that we have currently of what a student knows. And it shouldn't matter if they were present either. If a student is able to miss a large portion of my course and then show up at assessment day and show me a mastery understanding of the material, then that, then that student should get credit for that material and that I can use that experience to inform some of my practice. Either I, am a, I actually have space to increase the resolution of my course expectations because students can do well without actually being present, or that student was misplaced in my course to begin with and should have been in a more challenging environment, uh, or my assessment practices do not actually target the complexities that I believe that they're targeting. So uh, if that event occurs, there are things that I need to do to change to make that, uh, that, that means that I am not really helping that student develop their schema. They're doing that fine without me, which means they, my role in the class, I was failing in my role of the class to find out where their schema was and help them develop it. So in that so in that case i am the one that has to change because of that grade circumstance but so if we accept that a grade should be a representation of what students know and can do and i think that most i think most teachers would accept that regardless of how they come to uh calculating grades i think most teachers accept that that should be the representation so the issue that we get and what's dealt with in the article that we're considering a proposal to radically revise high school transcripts uh, this Forbes article, was the issue that it is so radically different between teachers. And so trying to reduce a grade to a number loses that fidelity to what a student knows. So does a 90% in Mr. Woodruff's college biology course mean the same thing that a 90% in a college English course, the same thing as a 90% in a drama course, the same thing as a 90% in any ever any other subject being taught in a late East high school. I, I, it does not. It does not mean the same thing course to course. Why not? Because grades are a veneer of objectivity over subjective judgments. If 100% is complete mastery of a topic, if 100% on this assessment, we've, we've got these topics on this assessment, you've got 100%, you have completely mastered it, then the judgment went into the statement that this assessment is a mastery assessment, that every point, every percentage, every single uh, series of questions uh, is precisely tuned in order to target at a percentage level a hundred point scale level of distribution between uh, one student and another student. Yes, a 96% is better than a 95%. They, the, this student is a greater degree of mastery than that student. And this was honestly said in a professional development meeting in which I sat in, the, in our school district that bad data is better than no data at all. And that is false. Making up a number 
make someone more confident in something that is no more, no better, and oftentimes worse than having the absence of that number. And the uh, the false confidence that comes with that makes us dangerous. It makes it makes teachers inflexible, and it makes teachers afraid of changing, and it makes teachers afraid of unfamiliar methodologies and practices. And so I think that, that I think that that's dangerous and I reject some of those original statements of things that we can do to deal with the uncertainties of a 100 point scale. What gets us into trouble is not what we don't know. It's what we know for sure that just ain't so. That is a uh, quote from Mark Twain that kind of I think uh, calls to this bad data idea. If we are making decisions and judgments about information that is arbitrary or inaccurate, it would be better if we were not using those assessments at all. Create assessments that do a better job of getting you the information that you actually want to know. My goal in my classroom is to help my students develop their schema of molecular biology concepts. And I know that that process is going to involve multiple episodes. I know that they are going to have to make connections between what they know and the new content. And because all of our, none of our students are blank slates, they're all coming into that classroom with prior experiences. Some of those experiences may prime them to more readily make those connections, and other students may have not ever explored this schema before. And so there are, they're farther away from this content, and there are more nodes that need to be developed and more connections that need to be developed to help bridge them there. So if I, if I have a student who takes an assessment and is dissatisfied with their current performance, then I allow that student the opportunity to re-attempt those assessments. And I do not have a limit on how many times students can re-attempt those assessment assessments. And I do not impose diminishing returns on the attempts to those assessments. So I do not care if a student doesn't know something in September. Um, if they get it by November or December, then their uh, semester grade report will reflect that knowledge, even if that content was initially introduced in September they will be rewarded for the credit of their knowledge when they exhibit it. So I think the, you and the author don't fundamentally disagree, but they've got an obsolete method. The author of this article is an obsolete method for addressing that uh, constantly revising state of student understanding. You shouldn't drown out past misconceptions and misunderstandings with a deluge of additional grades. You should just have an a, a grade in which you have high faith. So if I can retake this assessment until it represents my current understanding, that serves the same purpose as having a great many grades in the grade book, except you don't have outdated obsolete measurements from past experiences still sitting on the grade book. If there is a summative assessment, that's what should be in the grade book, the end. So you should have frequent feedback and frequent um, information on student progress, but that shouldn't be represented with a hundred different grades in a grade book because they are not all independent, they are not all current, and so that redundancy does nothing but muddy the waters for your final for your final score in the course. 
So here's the issue that we come down to, and this is the this is the bulk of the article that we're discussing, is there are these inadequacies of grades. We think that grades should represent what a student knows, but they don't currently. That's kind of the thesis of this article. And so what should we do about that is if instead of numbers, what if we go to a portfolio? So what if we just abandon the numerical and the letter system entirely and compile this portfolio of product and comment and discussion and pass that along to colleges instead, would that, would that alleviate the misconceptions of student progress and solve the problem of students who are, are, have understanding but it's not represented in the grade or are, or are crushing the grades but not because of behaviors that are producing understandings. And so it would resolve those things because it would allow for the subtlety and the nuance uh, uh, that a current grade system doesn't allow. And this push is coming from uh, a consortium of private schools. I think that's relevant to this conversation is a lot of this discussion is about what's happening in private schools and considering is this something that could happen in public schools. So why would we want to move away from numbers and letters and go into this, more, this deeper analysis at all like is that even something worth considering in the first place are grades so broken that they should be abandoned entirely the mastery portfolios proposed by this mastery transcript consortium certainly are more student centered uh, the reports indicate uh, lots of domains of mastery and interactions both academically and socially for the student. Uh, you certainly get a wider picture of the student. It seems that these transcripts are more like a, um, a not just a report card, but uh, sort of a cover level, cover letter and a curriculum vitae uh, of the student, a list of their accomplishments. What has this student done um, with, uh, Acknowledgements to certain academic academic skills that they have illustrated uh, while they were uh, in school. So it is definitely more student centered. Someone who is considering a candidate is going to get a more holistic picture of the student through these portfolios than they would from a list of courses with letters. When you say a person, about whom are you speaking? Like, who who looks at grades? Uh, lots of different people. So are we talking about a general person chose at random from all the stakeholders and grades? Uh, yes, I am I am thinking about Muhammad at ISU admissions. Uh, I, I reject this argument. I reject it. I think that it is I think that this actually will lead to an obfuscation of students' progress for the same reasons that patients aren't handed the primary results from each of their specialist tests, but they are in fact synthesized from by the doctors, and what they say to you is you are sick, you are not sick. I think that allowing for all of this sort of ad hoc judgment, decision, discussion, description is going to make it much more difficult for non-professionals to make reasonable judgments. And it's going to make it a lot easier for them to be misled. And it's going to particularly skew the decision-making process in favor of people who can afford or are in a position to have well-written, articulate, and persuasive instructors 
I think this is something that is going to lead to greater inequity in America if it were something that were deployed across the board. But one of the arguments that was made in that paper is that the complexity of successfully implementing this is an impediment to doing it. And I think your argument is a branch of that argument. Tell me more. Well, so if we all do it, the problem will be people who are incapable of really interpreting these effectively will get them, which will cause uh, problems that are uh, uh, exacerbating inequalities. And so uh, there will be actually less effective information transfer from the school districts to post-secondary uh, than uh, the current system. Uh, so far, so good. I'm with you so I'm, far. That I'm yeah. rephrasing. I'm, I'm making sure that I understand your argument. Yeah, I, I have no corrections. Okay. So, um, why, if, if, if that is the goal, um, you're right. We wouldn't want to change the system at all. They are used to the current system. But I think the argument is that the current system is terrible. The current system, uh, increases... Uh, student um, increases student anxiety. Uh, the current system encourages students to um, have to suffer states of disequilibrium about navigating grades over uh, enduring states of disequilibrium in terms of wrestling with schema development. So uh, the current system, the many numbers, long series of numbers, try to represent the student is not good for our students um, because it refocuses the student's attention from cognitive skill development and understanding to grade navigation. That, I believe, is the central argument as to why the current grade system should change. Uh, all of that is true. What part of that isn't something that should be remedied in the individual classroom? Because we're not, I don't report to a student's transcript a 95. I report an A. So we're actually reporting on a five, uh, a five bin scale. And I'm pretty comfortable. If I was picking a number, I'd pick three or four. But five bins is pretty close to an acceptable level of resolution for me as a teacher and the judgments I can make about student progress. I can, I could pretty faithfully reproduce five levels of competency. Now, if I'm trying to do that with these lengthy, arduous, multiple choice tests that I'm cranking out three times a week, then I am malpracticing. That's, I am not doing that appropriately. But I can produce that student is currently at full mastery a they they have mastered what we are doing in class right now versus a c they're developing they have these competencies but they are not there yet on these particular skills or ideas i think that we can do a five bin system i think that the way we arrive at the bin for each individual student is the source of all of these failings and they can all be solved in individual teachers classrooms in a world where a teacher has the authority to make those decisions within their own classroom. I agree that a five point scale is something I can be far more statistically confident about in my judgments than a 100 point scale and that I can see the difference between five tiers of productivity than I can in a hundred tiers of productivity. I. I agree that I can. I think that is a better way for me to make my judgments about my students. However, I'm not sure that that alone is an argument against 
portfolios. Uh, I, I, I think that the portfolios are better than what is... It, the portfolios will be a better representation of student achievement than the current implementation of the graded systems. Now, if you are proposing that the current systems can be fixed and implemented better to not need portfolios or in a way that is even a greater service than portfolios, I might be able to concede that. I would want to hear more. Uh, you used the word better twice in that last in that last phrase. Yes. Uh, what do you mean when you say better? Because here, here, let me let me tell you why I ask. As you're pondering, sure. Let me tell you why I ask. Uh, there is an example in medicine where more information leads to worse decision making. So more detail is not always better. There's an instance, and I, the details escape me now. I think it comes from uh, from how we decide. If I'm trying to if I'm trying to cite it correctly, double check me on that internet. There's a story from medicine where doctors trying to diagnose, I think it was a back problem, made worse diagnoses and were wrong more often when they got an additional scan. Uh, it was like, it's like a full, it's not a full body scan, but the equivalent of that scan for that region. They made worse decisions than if they just worked from the, the most accessible diagnostic criteria. So adding information made their decisions worse. And I think that this is an instance where that's going to happen also. So if you mean better because it's more information, then I reject the equivalency of those two words. So what exactly do you mean by better? Uh, I mean better because it serves the student better. The student... I, see, I think what I've discovered about myself here is that I really don't prioritize the communication to the post-secondary institutions. Mm -hmm. I see the report as something that the student can use as a point of motivation and a mark of mastery and growth and a celebration of their development as they have gone through uh, a K-12 education. So if they leave high school with a portfolio celebrating their achievements and masteries that they have earned because of their commitment to their schema and their cognitive development, that is a more uh, enriching and satisfying document for those students uh, and the process of creating that document during their four years of high school is more engaging and is, has more opportunities to encourage them to choose uh, struggle through dis disequilibrium uh, to achieve accommodation than, than would I got at 95. The purpose of grades is not to motivate. So, like... I don't care if it's more engaging. And that's why they should be abolished for a portfolio. No, should be portfolios being more engaging doesn't matter to me at all because the purpose of a grade is not engagement. So I don't, I don't care about that reason at all. Uh, well, if the purpose of the grade is to illustrate their competencies and the portfolio reports their competencies, I don't understand why you would choose one that is less engaging to one that is more engaging. Because it reduces the, um, the accessibility of that information. You are right. When we implement an institutional change, the inst other associated institutions will also have to change. You are correct that without 
uh, preparedness for reading these documents, there would be problems in the post-secondary world. But if this is the right thing to do for our students, for their participation in education, then those, if that is our priority and is our goal, then the other organizations are going to have to change. So roll the clock forward a little bit, because one of the things that I think we agree on, and I think the author references as well, is clarity of expectations is critical. Yeah. So if you're going to say to graduate high school, your portfolio has to be pretty, how do I know which students have met that? If it's a judgment call of a counselor, how many counselors are going to tell students they can't graduate high school because their portfolio isn't pretty? So it's going to boil down to box checking. And if a portfolio has met these six boxes, you graduate. And so it's just going to devolve into compliance all over again. The scenario that you proposed uh, is not unreasonable. If nothing changes in classrooms and the students have to create a portfolio and then a counselor judges whether that portfolio is, you know, acceptable or not, then that's that. But this portfolio, uh, as we've described, is to me, it was not necessarily a document uh created by students to illustrate their mastery. It was a document that was a holistic assessment of a student's progress through the many courses of the high school in terms of developing these or exhibiting these particular skills. So this isn't like a student made a project, a counselor assesses whether it's good or not good enough to graduate and then they graduate or not. This is a, a process that is ongoing throughout the school. So every um, interaction where they create a product or have assessment is going to feed into this portfolio. Um, when they achieve a degree of mastery, like you say, yes, this student got this, these set of concepts, they have the interconnections, they can communicate them, they can exhibit them, they can apply them. A, once that has been achieved, those, those uh, that block of mastery or whatever skill or content that that represents would then be added to that portfolio. So the students know which, uh, what the uh, expectations are and are involved in assessing where they are in that process the entire time that they're in the high school. And the teachers know ahead of time and the counselors know ahead of time. The students are far more engaged in what are the masteries that I have achieved and what are the ones that I have not achieved. They are far more invested in that journey, in that process. Uh, so I think that implementation is key. Every good idea can be garbage if done poorly. So I, I definitely agree. And the example that you posited is that example. And yes, I'm sure that if we all did this today, there would be plenty of places where it would be garbage um, because it, it would slide down to that. So uh, I, I accept that uh, pitfall. But I think, I think that the value of having students see their masteries grow over time and see a list of their achievements and accomplishments reinforces their under their acceptance that their struggle with disequilibrium yields results and i think that is the value of having this complex feedback process
you mentioned that as they're as they are demonstrating specific masteries and competencies with blocks of information and particular regions of a schema, they receive credit, however, whatever word is, for that block of mastery. And if we accept from the literature last episode that schemas have a hierarchical structure, then organizing these five or six biology schemas under the larger schema of biology, and when I have banked these five or six masteries that are related to biology, I can bank the biology mastery idea. Aren't we just describing standards-based grading at the class level? Yes. I'm okay with that. Yeah. So, like... All of this is just the end run around individual teachers being responsible for their grades representing mastery in their particular schema. Uh, yes, and the portfolio is sort of, I suppose, a top-down uh, mechanism to influence teachers to choose mastery or standard-based grade reports. Uh, I have a proposal. So if I'm going to say no to something, saying no to things is easy. So proposing something and accepting something is more difficult. So you've already said you're in favor of something. So I'm going to go out on my limb. If I'm going to make an argument, I want to maintain the letter bin system, but then I want to insert a column on a transcript and each teacher assigns one word to describe student performance for that grading period. They have the authority to assign one word with no restraints or restrictions, one word that highlights or flavors student performance. So you earned a B, tenacious. You earned a C, disengaged. You earned an A, dynamic. Uh, you earned an A, unchallenged. Like that one word of flavor is both scalable in a way that lengthy portfolios are not, but has the additional flavor and subtlety that I think some people are seeking from a transcript. One word. Uh, though uh, I like that and would implement it immediately as it is an approach toward a portfolio. It is closer to where I want to be, so I agree we should do that now. <laughs> yep, I'm with you there. Alright. Now, we do other stuff. Let's talk content. Uh, yeah. So what we're looking at, and you can see it in the episode description, is a period review of Pride and Prejudice that was published in 1813, uh, so at the time of its release. And it this this article website, I have a hard time describing it, this, this page compares the review that was done then to modern reviews that we would read or that people are writing right now uh, and compares some of the things that stood out then that remain highlighted now versus some things that were important then and are not important now. So I went and I read the actual 1813 review, mm -hmm. and uh, there were some things that popped out to me, and that was the, uh, the reviewer said that it was interesting that this was a story about the entirety of the, the family and not just a, uh, an exchange between two people, and he said that, that was n novel for the time, whereas uh, when, I think of, um, when I think of Pride and Prejudice and my many viewings of many different theatrical presentations of Pride and Prejudice, uh, I think of it as, you know, the love story between uh, Darcy and Elizabeth. So the fact that it's not about two people is, is sort of a, a view that I had not taken before. 
And I think this is a good instance where you can read an authentic description of something that is different now because it is classic and it's a more satisfying narrative and it's a richer uh, set of characters that that's the direction literature has gone. And so our exposure now to things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe that has dozens of characters with deep backstories and subtle interactions. And so our threshold for what a dynamic character set looks like is different now than it was then. And this is a good authentic experience as somebody who says, this is a classic and this is an excellent direction to be going back at a time where that wouldn't be remarkable to, to people who are reading it now. Another note about that review is that uh, the 1813 review was essentially a complete synopsis. It told pages. you the whole story. It, yeah, it was it was several pages long, and it essentially just re-narrated the highlights of the events of the story. So clearly, they did not care about spoiler alerts. <laughs> that was not a concern to them. The, the, the plot elements were not what you read for, apparently. You read for the subtleties of dialogue and scene, which... Um, the more that I uh, enjoy consuming uh, Jane Austen with my wife, the more I am able to uh, understand the subtleties of, of dialogue and scene that she embeds in her work. So uh, they that part of the review, uh, when they talk about uh, Elizabeth's wit and the value of the banter and the dialogue between the characters, I feel is... Um, that holds up today. When I think of Jane Austen, I think, well, what is good about these? You know, um, uh, high school fight club Lawrence would be, would be furrowing his brows to why are you watching these movies? These look terrible. But, uh, 35 year old high school teacher Lawrence is saying, yeah, some of the complexities of the dialogue and the social situations that restrict their communication is pretty amazing. So, uh, that part holds up for, for today's, uh, reviews. So I think from a, from a curricular standpoint, what's so valuable about a, a piece like this is that comparison from what was important then to what's important now, the realism of those characters. Uh, I know an Elizabeth. I, that's a, there's a person in my life who would do all of these things. The realistic nature of those characters I think makes character development more, more real for our students if they can compare what was important then and what was important now. It goes back to our schema development discussion if I see multiple examples of a review, I can prune away the things that have been more dynamic over time, and I can identify the common themes that are particularly foundational to understanding this peak of liter literary work. And I think that applies in lots of domains. I think that's important, not just in literature, although literature is a particularly rich area for this to happen. Another interesting thing um, that I noted and I would wonder if my high school students would note it if they were presented the opportunity to consider this particular review, is that it, about 25% of it was talking about the father of the family. Um, Mr. Uh, Mr. Bennett, who is an interesting character, and he does have influence, and, and he, he, does, he is sort of a, uh, a notable character, he is not an important, a critically important part of the story. His role is instead mostly setting and background and establishing the environment with which the drama unfolds. You know, his economic state is this, so here's the story. But the original review spent a lot of time talking about him and how he got to this place in his life and what his financial situation is. And he, it was like 
25% of that review, and okay, that's a ballpark ballpark figure, but why? I think the question, why was 25% of the review spent on describing the father, would be a question that our students today could really explore some deep schema uh, with the, that question in either a liter literary or a historical social studies type class. Or if you're doing, if you're if you're teaching at a all star level, both. So if you can pair with an English course that is considering the the literature of all of this, then in social studies you can have that conversation as it applies to classism and as it applies to patriarchy. So those 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 schema ideas, those schema regions that you mentioned last episode could be considered more authentically when they're nested in a real setting. And now for something completely different. You ready for the non sequitur? Let's try it. Today's non sequitur, we're going to imagine that you are the principal of a school and you are considering one of two policies. You must choose one of these two things and they are extremes on a spectrum. You may either require every single teacher in your secondary high school building to score every student's performance in class every day and every parent will read it. Your weighting of those numbers is optional. You don't how you make those incorporate your final score is up to each individual teacher, but every teacher will be required to make a daily score. Your second option, if you don't do that, then you then you may have no required parent contact at any time and with no expectations for anyone's grade book at all. It is allowable for some teachers to assign a grade the last day of the semester and make do nothing further and that would be acceptable. Those are your only two options. Being a principal is terrible. Uh, let me apologize. Me being a principal is terrible. <laughs> I just there are, there are plenty of principals out there that are great, and I love you, great principals, uh, especially because you are not me, and I don't have to do that job. So uh, this probably isn't the third most difficult decision our principal made yesterday. So like, I'm gonna argue for option one. I think that given those two choices, every teacher should be required to give feedback every day. The utmost priority needs to be consistent feedback. The worst case scenario is students not knowing their own progress in a course. So while if there are going to be some teachers who allow those numbers to be weighted and that will be a mistake, and there are going to be some teachers who assign arbitrary numbers and that will be frust frustrating, it is far better than the number of teachers who would take advantage of having new expectations and have, allowing students to have no idea their progress on an ongoing basis. And so the costs of having some students go entire semesters with no feedback on their progress are unacceptable compared to the damage it will do to require some teachers to provide grades more often than is necessary. I agree with your statement that daily feedback is of value to students, um, but the fallacy in your argument is that that feedback needs to occur in a grade book. And as such, um, in fact, I think having that uh, daily feedback occurring in a grade book might be damaging to the students as it refocuses their attention to the daily grade book and not to, okay, what is it that I have to struggle through to understand this in my classroom? And as such, I would be for the 
opposite extreme. No grades uh, and teacher feedback, parent feedback should be uh, done when the teacher feels or the parents are wanting to check in uh, and be, be done organically between the teacher and the parents and the students uh, as needed. When students are able to release themselves from the anxiety of academic risks, which grades impose upon them uh, penalties sometimes for those academic risks. When you remove those, they're more likely to take those academic risks and struggle through that disequilibrium that we need for them to accommodate a greater uh, schema to develop their understanding about this topic. So if I have to choose between these two extremes, if I have to mandate between these two extremes, I would. And I believe by doing that, I would be able to influence some teachers who have been locked in a daily grade paradigm to begin to uh, have a safer space for them to try new things. I think the, I think freeing them would lead to greater creativity for uh, teachers taking uh, educational risks. Teachers trying things are going to take more time. I'm going to have to lose more time for this. But since I don't have to write a daily grade, it's okay for me to take this time. I think the creativity of teachers to try new things, to challenge their students and give their students meaningful experiences will increase. If we have these two extremes, I think it would increase under option two more than option one. One thing that's worth noting here is the weighting is optional. So. I am arguing from a perspective of minimizing the damage. So I accept in a perfect world, the better, the best possible outcome along this spectrum is much closer to your position than mine, much closer. But in a school about which I know nothing, what is the worst thing that can happen if I have a teacher who is being forced to give grades every day? What's the worst thing that can be, that can happen? Some of those students are going to have their motivation damaged. That's the worst thing that's going to happen. Versus what's the worst thing that can happen with no expectations for regularity of feedback is there's going to be entire lost semesters, entire courses are going to be deserts because they're not getting consistent feedback and there's nothing the students or the teacher or the, the students or the parents can do about it. As we develop greater trust in the professionalism of our teachers, we are allowed to give them the opportunity to gate their feedback in a gradebook less frequently because I trust that those minimums will not come to pass because of the professionalism of my teachers. So as you gain greater trust and greater faith in your faculty, you're able to move towards something you're describing. But before that trust exists, while we are in an unknown high school, we must err on the side of frequent feedback. So you're presenting a one bad apple spoils the barrel argument. The, the one bad apple spoils the bunch issue is about ethylene and ethylene enforcing senescence. So it is true that one bad apple does spoil the, the barrel. Uh, but in a school environment, I'm going to go with complete freedom and I'm going to make it a key point in our professional development and our culture that we discuss and exchange and consider what we're doing in our classroom. We look at what other people are doing in our classrooms and we talk about it and I'm going to try to promote that environment as, as 
as high as I can possibly do, considering that I have a million jobs that I don't know about yet. Um, but that is something that I'm going to try to do. And those two things would go together. I trust you professionally to try things, and let's talk about how it goes, and let's talk about what happens. That is the space that I'd want to be, and as a principal, that is the, that, that is the error that I would rather side on. I didn't like any of that. What do you think of the beer? Uh, it is, it is, um, it is in a, it has the unfortunate, unfortunate position to follow dragon's milk. So, um, because of my predisposition, I, I think, I, I, I don't know what beer we could have followed that I wouldn't have, uh, had been a little disappointed in. Um, it is, uh, fast drinking, like, it, it's pretty thin. And uh, it's got uh, it's mildly hoppy, uh, which I don't like, but it's not over. It's not it's not terribly hoppy. So it is it is it's a, it's a fine drinkable beer. It's an amber, and it tastes like an amber. Yeah, brown lager is the text that's on the on the bottle. It is. It's pretty good. It's 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 lighter than I usually would prefer. Um, it's got a deep amber color, but it drinks like a lager. It really does. Yeah. Um, that that hoppiness is all. I'm not even sure that hoppiness is worth noting in my palate. Uh, I drink a couple of these, but given the opportunity to drink something else, I'd probably grab something else. Dunkel, well fought. Thank you for joining us. Discuss research and struggle well. <laughs>